This is Lamentations 3:22. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercy, his mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. So a more classical translation says, great is the faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. What we're exploring over the next couple of weeks is this simple question, what's so amazing about grace? Especially as we make that journey towards Easter. Easter is all about grace. It's all about the goodness of God, what Jesus Christ did for us when he died on the cross and he's risen again. But what is so amazing about grace? If we're going to answer that question, we actually have to start with one more question. What is grace? <laughs> what, what are we even talking about when we're talking about grace. In, in, in scripture, uh, in, in the New Testament, the word is charis. That's the Greek word. And it literally means favor or unmerited favor. Like you can't earn it. You don't, you know, like you can't get it. It's just an unmerited, undeserved favor. But it also means to stoop down or bend down in kindness. If you've ever uh, seen, you know, a little baby that's running towards their mama and they're just like got their hands up and they're running and then they trip and then they start screaming, you bend down in kindness and you scoop them up in kindness because you want them to feel better and because you want the screaming to stop. So you just like bend over, you pick them up, you're like, please stop screaming in public. And you're just like holding on to them, you bend down and you scoop down. That is literally the mental picture. I want us to jump over to Matthew chapter 18, if you've got a Bible. I know you don't, so the grace of God is the Bible verses on the screen behind me. Uh, Matthew 18, and we're going to start at about 20, uh, verse 23. These are the words of Jesus. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. Now, what we have to remember, and we just started talking about last week, is that Jesus' dream or his desire or what he wants for us in our life is, is, uh, is not just to get us into heaven. We think that uh, the whole purpose of all this is just to get into heaven. That's not it. Jesus' dream or, or goal or purpose for, for our lives is to get heaven into us. That the kingdom of heaven would come into our lives and begin transforming us from the inside out, that heaven would get into us. So every time Jesus speaks, and he always, he, he often uses these phrases, especially when he's about to tell a story to describe it, because for some reason, you know, spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So when it's a story, it just kind of makes sense. And he says, what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's when we perk up and we pay attention, because he's like, this is what our lives can look like. Kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. Anyone ever borrow money from your boss? No, don't put your hands up. <laughs> in the process, one of his debtors uh, was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. Now, when we read something like that, we, we like, the justice part of us is like, I can't believe they would sell human beings. Humans have infinite value. Well, not in this time and in this culture they didn't. In fact, selling him, his wife, his kids, and all of his properties would barely scratch the surface of the debt that he owed. It would barely scratch the surface. In, in our day and age, you know, lives are, have, you know, there's, there's no value that we would put on it. It's, it's, it's invaluable. 
But in this time, there was a dollar figure attached. He says, listen, we need to just, just clear up some debts. But when we think about this, this servant, this employee borrowing from his boss, who is clearly like a kajillionaire who could just lend employees millions and millions of dollars, that the amount actually says something about the person. Because suddenly, our minds start judging this guy for being in the situation he's in. But what it says about him, the fact that his boss would give him millions and millions and millions of dollars, is that he was close to his boss and his boss trusted him. That there was a relationship there. That somehow he would get this money. Now, there are some uh, scholars and theologians who, who lean towards the fact that this could have been an embezzlement situation. But if it was embezzlement the boss would not have routinely just called him in to collect the debts as one would do. So I, this leads me to this thought that this servant was, was close and had a good relationship with his boss. So he was like, yeah, okay, I got you. I trust you. I know where you work. You know, I know where you live. Uh, it just became insurmountable. It got out of control. Verse 26, but the man fell down before his master and begged him, please, Please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. He just let him go. He walked out and said, I'll pay you back, I'll pay you back. There was no way he was ever paying him back. In fact, other translations, depending on what translation you're reading today, it talks about that the dollar figure was, was, was like 10,000 something. That, that Greek word is myria, where we get the word myriad from. Like It was the highest uh, like round number value that they could attach to a currency. And then there's a second word, talent, which was the highest uh, a bill, you know, to use our language, that, that they could say. So when Jesus was saying that he owed a lot of money, he might have well been saying that he was owing trillions of dollars or zillions of dollars. Millions is a great start, but, but the, the implication was it was an overwhelmingly, crushingly large amount of money. And his boss just let it go. It could be said that in that moment, his boss stooped down to the servant, crumpled on the floor, picked him back up, and in a moment, restored to him his family, Restored to him his dignity, restored to him his home, restored to him his job, his position, his placement. He stooped down, scooped him up and says, hey, all is forgiven. I've wiped the slate clean. And then he just walked out the door. He just walked out the door. But the story's not finished. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant, so a co-worker, who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. The fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, and I will pay it. These are words that echoed in his heart, I'm sure. He pleaded, but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. I was scrolling through uh, Instagram not too long ago, you know, as one does, preferably not in, right now. Uh, and I saw one of these quotes, we rise when we lift others. You know, you ever seen that one? You're like, oh, that sounds so motivational. Like, I don't know what it means, but that's the best motivational quotes. You actually have no idea what they mean. They just have like a happy feeling in your heart and people just share them like crazy. You're like, okay, yeah, we all get this. 
No, we don't. But I, I like to think when I'm thinking about this story that this is the exact implication of what happened with that servant. He went up to his coworker, grabbed him by the neck, says, oh, I'm going to let you rise, all right. Puts him in a choke slam, Undertaker, WWF, kind of crazy thing is, you will pay me now. <laughs> Throw this man in jail. Now, that's quite a posture for somebody who just was forgiven millions and millions and millions of dollars. But it also suggests the depths of debt that this man was in. Because one of the only reasons that you would collect so instantly is that maybe his boss wasn't his only creditor. Maybe things had unraveled and got out of control so deeply that he had no other recourse. I don't know what the reason was why he would grab somebody and literally start choking them out. Have you ever choked anybody out? I mean, don't answer by a show of hands. Uh, like that. I was going to get someone to demonstrate this. I was like, that's a real bad look. Uh, uh, like that's, that's personal. That's, that's crushing. You literally are trying to take the life out of someone as if the debt load was not enough, but for a few thousand dollars you would begin to take someone and throw them in prison, which was the proper recourse. But after you've just been cleared yourself, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. Hebrews 12, 15 says this. We looked at it briefly last week. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Now, the interesting thing about grace is though it is a fiercely personal experience where Jesus comes and wipes our slate clean and, and offers us forgiveness and kindness and mercy, the amazing thing is that gr- this idea, this concept of grace is not stuck or confined in any one of those words. You know, grace is not just mercy. Great is not, grace is not just forgiveness. It's not just compassion. It's not just love. It's all of those things wrapped into one. It could be said that grace is the attitude or the posture and the, the expression of those things comes out in all kinds of different ways like mercy, grace, forgiveness, kindness, in love. But the implication in scripture is that grace is a group activity. Great grace is for all of us. Great grace can flow among us. And we it's our job to let grace be our posture, to let grace be our spirit, to let grace be our stance, and let grace be our heartbeat. Because if grace is not primary, if grace does not lead us, then very quickly something else springs up. Where there is no grace, there's bitterness. This last Christmas, uh, my son Everett, he's five, he got one of those Playmobil hockey games. You know, those like, they're like little plastic guys and you just kind of play back and forth. And it's awesome, probably more awesome for me than it is for him. Uh, But we play together. And when we play, um, I'm trying to teach my son that winning is a primary goal in life. And that there's no second place. Second places are losers. And, um, and so, like, when we play, like, I don't take it easy. Like, I can flick the stick. So can you. Like, you've got those motor skills. So, like, there are times where I'm winning 9 nothing, And it's totally fine. Like, he just needs to learn that this is how life really is. If there's a participation medal that he gets at school, I will rip, take it away. And he does not get to have it. There's, that's just not a thing, right? It's not real. It's fake. So... You guys need to have some grace for just a moment. 
But when we're in the midst of playing and I'm running up a score, because that's what one does when you're crushing everyone, and uh, whatever it does is he reaches over across the board and it's those old school sliders that have the points, and he just takes my nine and he just turns it into a zero. And he just starts it again and he says something like, next goal wins. And he scores a goal, and then it's over. And somehow, 9 nothing turned into a one nothing defeat for me. And I, I don't know how he does it, but he just resets the score to zero. He just takes it back to zero. Like, how, did, how does he even do that? That's what Jesus does for us each and every day, each and every morning, each and every moment. He resets our score and our debt to zero, our unsurmountable, unbeatable score. I can't come back from a 9 nothing deficit, but when you take it down to zero, you're giving me an opportunity to win. You're giving me an opportunity to move forward. We are champions of grace because when there is no grace present, bitterness starts popping up and bitterness can start to define us because bitterness always keeps score. Bitterness always keeps track. Bitterness always writes down what you've been wronged and they make sure to reciprocate when the moment comes. When grace wins, when grace leads, when grace uh, is our main driver, when it's who we are and it's become a deep part of who we are, then we just wipe the slate clean over and over and over. It's reminiscent of the phrase when Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. Like, well, how many times? Or sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So I guess we just keep turning it. Grace is an attitude. Mercy is an act. Forgiveness is an act. It's, it's a worldview. It's his perspective. I mean, we have to think about it like this. Matthew 10 clearly said, verse 8, freely I've received. Give freely as you have received. Another translation says, as freely as you received, freely give. Whatever comes to me, let it flow through me. Whatever comes to me, let it throw, flow through me. See, in the story, we like to demonize that servant. We can't imagine his evil, the level of deception, his greed, And yet, in the story, we are not the king, and nor are we the second debtor, but we are, in fact, that man choking out his co-worker and his friend for a small portion, mainly because we just keep keeping score. We just keep keeping score. So if grace is the posture... And love is the action. How can we define what grace looks like in action? We actually find it in 1 Corinthians 13. You might have read this at your wedding or been to a wedding and you heard this. You're like, that's so nice. It's so nice when you like phrase it in terms of two people who are in love starting their life. And you're getting all the vibes and the flowers and the romance. But it's not nice when it comes into my real life. Love is patient and kind. Oh, that's a loss right there. I'm impatient and not kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Grace is the posture. Love is the output. So you could say that grace is patient and kind. The attitude and the posture of grace is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. 
You're like, well, but I'm just like an assertive person. There's a difference between being assertive and being a jerk. You're like, are you talking? You're getting real practical here. Yeah, no, I'm getting real practical because what you're passing off as a personality trait is a root of bitterness. Oh, that got real, real fast. Did not say that in the nine. They could not handle it. They were not awake. Because the fruit of the Spirit in our life is love, joy, peace, kindness, long-suffering. When, when God is at work in our life, when grace happens, Jesus happens. And he transforms us from the inside out. And he rounds off the rough edges. And he wants to transform who you are as a person. We can stop making excuses for who we are. And we can start embracing the transformation of Jesus Christ in our life. And just watch what will happen to your relationships. Watch what will happen to your marriage. Watch what will happen to you and your coworkers when you're, they're so used to them you choking them out over the small things that they're like wow what happened to this guy i can tell you what have happened heaven got into that guy grace happened and jesus happened and he transformed you from the inside out so we can either say we're going to go through the motions in this thing and pretend that we're just following jesus we can even try and put on a fake smile and superimpose kindness or we can invite the the transforming power of Jesus Christ into our life and understand that when we do that, he's going to start working on some of the rough areas in our lives. And that's going to be a bumpy road, if we're being honest. It's going to be a bumpy road, but just because it's difficult doesn't mean that it doesn't have a purpose. doesn't mean that Jesus isn't going to walk you through. Give as freely as you have received. We love because he first loved us. We stoop down because he first stooped down for us. Have you ever said the phrase, and you know, generally when you're about to get mad, you say, I'm not going to lower myself down to their level. Actually, the gospel calls us to lower ourselves down to their level. He just changes the way we respond in that situation. I want to share another portion of scripture with you. Is that all right? Second Samuel. It doesn't really matter if you think it's all right. Second Samuel nine. <laughs> I say those things and I don't get a response. I'm like, it doesn't mean I'm going to stop people. Second um, Samuel nine. Wow. I should have put a marker in this. They're like, this guy doesn't even know his Bible. I'm there. It's fine. I brought a real one. I'm giving you grace. Second Samuel nine. One day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Is there anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And he summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked? Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled. In both feet. The king asked, Where is he? In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Makir's house. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, just by way of context, it's interesting that David and Jonathan were mentioned earlier this morning because David and Jonathan, uh, Jonathan was the son of King Saul, who was the king of Israel. Saul was, you know, the king. Jonathan was in line for the throne, but Saul sinned against, sinned against God, and he didn't listen. He kept doing his own thing over and over again. So God says, listen, you're not gonna, your family line's not going to be king anymore. I'm changing it up. David's going to become king. 
And Jonathan recognized that, and they stayed as BFFs. Now, that's an incredible work of grace, that David and Jonathan could stay friends when Jonathan literally deferred his right to somebody else. Saul and Jonathan died on a battlefield together. When a king died in this culture, the new incoming king had a right to kill that entire king's family and lineage. Very simple, so that nobody could legally or rightfully challenge the throne. So all they would do is exterminate the family line. Simple. So upon news of David and John, Saul and Jonathan's death in the battlefield, Mephibosheth's nanny, Mephibosheth's the son of Jonathan, young prince, nanny grabbed him and rushed out of the palace. On the way out of the palace, she fell and dropped him down the entry stairs of the palace and crippled Mephibosheth. She scooped up the young man, five, six years old. So, I mean, for me, it's my, it's my son. Picked him up and took him to a place called Lodabar, which means no pasture, no word, and no communication. They hid him away in a place that was desolate where nobody could find him. No word coming in, no word getting out, and no food. So they're starving, they're struggling, they're alone, but they're not going to be found, and at least they're alive. But that's not really much of an existence, is it? Just being alive. To add insult to injury, if you had a serious physical ailment, then you were, you're, you or your family, or your father, or your grandfather was viewed as a sinner, and this was a punishment from God on your life. So now, not only is he living as, like, basically, uh, uh, daylight savings time. Not only is he living hidden away, like he's a man on the run, but he is living as a sinner condemned by God in his mind and in the minds of everybody else. So when David asked Ziba, who used to work for Saul, if anyone was alive, and he starts saying, I'm going to show him kindness, I can't help but think that Ziba's like, oh, this is a trap. He's just going to bring him here. He's going to find him enough time has passed that, you know, he's just going to bring him. And, like, I don't know what's going to happen. He brings him into his throne room. They, he falls at the feet of the king. And David says something profound. Verse 7, don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth walked with the mentality, well, he didn't walk, he lived with the mentality that he was a dead dog, that he was not worth any more than a dying animal on the side of the road. He lived with this chip on the shoulder that he was nothing and that he was hiding and his, his existence was meaningless. In one moment, the king, who he thought was going to take his head off, stooped down and gave him kindness. He says, you're going to have a seat at my table. Your inheritance is coming back. Your land is coming back. Your position, your stature is back. I don't care about what they say about you. What I care about is that I've decided in my heart to give you kindness and to give you things 
things that aren't even rightfully yours, but they are now yours. And this chapter finishes with the fact that Mephibosheth sat and ate at the king's table for the rest of his life. In this passage of scripture, we would like to think that we're King David extending kindness, but in reality, we are Mephibosheth, broken and living in desolate, lonely places until Jesus, our King, calls us out of our brokenness, calls us out of hiding, calls us out of a life of accusation, and He calls us into His very presence and throne room, His courts, and He says, I'm here to extend you kindness, the kindness of a King. I'm here to give you a destiny and a hope and a future. I'm here to give you back what's been stolen from you. I'm here to restore you to the place that you always thought you could be, but you never saw a pathway forward. When Jesus comes in into the picture. He stoops down and he picks us up and he puts all the pieces back together. He extends to us a great grace and the kindness that can only come from a king. A kindness that we don't deserve. And so as freely as it is given to us, he says, freely give it to others. Freely give it to others. Don't let the root of bitterness go down deep because it corrupts others because bitterness spreads like a wildfire because we just can't help but share our anger. Why is it that we can't help but share our anger but when it's grace, we just keep it locked up and bottled up and we save it for the next time we need it? What if you started pouring out and extending grace on every situation, on every circumstance. Don't you think that the God who is faithful to give it once would continue to pour it out over and over and over again in an unending measure? Don't you think that the measure in your life is going to rise and it's going to be raised as you raise the bar and pour out the mercy and grace and kindness of Jesus? Don't you think that as it comes out of you, he's going to continue to pour more into you? You don't have to worry about holding on and bottling it up for later. His mercies are new every morning, as if to say, hey, listen, I got you. Give it all away today, because I got more for you tomorrow. You thought it was just about him forgiving you. No, it's about you pouring it out. And when you run out at the end of the day, and you're expended at the end of the day, Jesus says, I got a whole other supply that I'm ready to pour out. Great grace. Jesus stooped down and lifted us up midst of our pain, brokenness, disappointment, and despair. Here's a question for us. Who are we lifting 